Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. If you're not seated, please be seated or uh, right now. Well, I wonder how you handle disappointments in life with family, friends, career, health, finances, or anything else for that matter. It's hard when things don't go as you had hoped for. But what about when you experience disappointment with God? I mean, is it okay to feel that way, to feel let down by him? I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, there have been numerous times when I have felt like God's disappointed me. Maybe I've longed for a change in my life and it hasn't come. Perhaps I've prayed for things and they haven't happened, or I've obeyed what he's told me to do, expecting certain results, but it doesn't work out the way that I'd anticipated. I remember feeling disappointed with God as a college student 25 years ago when a long-term relationship came falling apart and I felt crushed. I remember feeling the same way a few years after that when I was studying at Bible college and I felt like my faith was falling apart as I was coming up against tough questions concerning scripture. I remember feeling this way when I moved to America about 18 years ago and I felt so lonely and lost trying to figure out how to do the ministry that I'd been called to. I remember feeling this way when the money ran out at seminary and I didn't have enough to pay the bills. And I remember feeling it a couple of years ago when I just felt lost in the middle of certain life circumstances, disappointed with God, wondering why wasn't he acting as I wanted him to, wondering when he would show up. I expect many of you have felt this way too, perhaps over even more serious things, maybe a marriage gone wrong, a job lost, someone you loved who died too soon, or a disease that you weren't expecting, even a pandemic that you just weren't counting on. But it isn't only in the big things of life that we experience these kinds of feelings towards God. In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey writes this, disappointment with God does not come only in dramatic circumstances. For me, it also edges unexpectedly into the mundaneness of everyday life. I have found that petty disappointments tend to accumulate over time, undermining my faith with a lava flow of doubt. I start to wonder whether God cares about everyday details about me, and I'm tempted to pray less often, having concluded in advance that it won't matter, or will it? My emotions and my faith waver. Once those doubts seep in, I'm even less prepared for times of major crisis. If you've ever felt like this, know that you are in good company from pastors to Christian authors and even prominent Bible characters. You see, in our gospel reading today, we have someone who's experiencing disappointment with God, specifically Jesus, and it's leading him to doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. John the Baptist, someone who's known Jesus since the beginning of his life, is wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent to rescue people from their sins. And it's a situation we all find ourselves in at one time or another, and maybe now more than ever, wondering, is God who he says he is? And if so, when's he going to show up? Today, what we'll see is that disappointment with God is normal, but it's not something that cannot be overcome and in fact, it can lead us to a much stronger 
and deeper faith in him. So let's turn to our reading from Luke chapter 7. Now, if you're new to Holy Cross, well, welcome, of course. And it's worth knowing that this year we're looking exclusively at Luke's gospel. And our prayer for 2020 is that we will see Jesus clearly, that we'll see him for who he really is. And if there's someone who can help us do that, it is the author of this gospel, Luke, the beloved physician, follower of Jesus, and assistant to the apostle Paul. And Luke's one of those people who's into details. He cares about accuracy. And it's because he wants people to know that this is a trustworthy account. It's an account that they can make a decision based upon. And not just any decision, the most important decision of their life. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if so, how then should I now live? It's also worth noting that the account that he's giving is set against the backdrop of a political and religious darkness. Israel is an occupied territory with corrupt rulers and very little hope. And into this situation has stepped a man called John, John the Baptist as we know him. But who is John? Well, he's a cousin of Jesus. And John's the last of the Old Testament prophets sent to repair the way for the Messiah. He's one who leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when he first met Jesus, who was also in the womb at that time, the womb of Mary. As a young man, he then went to live in the wilderness and to tell people of their need to repent. And thousands flocked to see him, to see this strange man wearing clothes made of camel hair and eating wild honey and locusts. He then gets to baptize Jesus in the River Jordan and to see the Holy Spirit descend upon him and the voice of God speaking blessing over Jesus, his son. He's also the one who prophesies that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice that the world's been waiting for. And because of his confidence in Jesus, he also sends his disciples to follow Jesus. And then the last thing that we hear about him is that being a straight talker, he stands up to Herod, the king of Galilee, and tells him it's unlawful to divorce his wife and take his brother's wife, Herodias, as his own. And this is why we find him in prison today. The Jewish historian at that time, Josephus, corroborates Luke's account, writing, John was brought in chains to the fort of Machaerus. It's a desolate place. But Herod has finally found a way to shut him up. Well, as you can see, John's clearly a man of incredible faith. And he's lived into the prophecy given before his birth that he will be great before the Lord and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. But now here he is in uh, in Herod's jail. He's chained up. He's wasting away in a cell, waiting and waiting to find out what will happen next. It's all beyond his control. And he's got plenty of time to think about everything. And now he starts to wonder. He's increasingly perplexed by the reports he hears of Jesus' ministry because they don't seem to fit with the twofold prophecy he'd preached about what Jesus would do in chapter 3 of Luke. John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not, um, not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. On the one hand, Jesus' incredible miracles fit well with the prophecies about him. 
But in regard to his prophecy of judgment that Jesus would burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, nothing's happened. The Romans are still in control and their lackeys, including Herod and Herodias, are living in comfort. And the religious establishment is just as arrogant and self-righteous as before. Did I get it wrong? John wonders. Is Jesus who he said he is? Should I really trust him? After all, if anyone's worthy of being rescued, it's me, isn't it? And so in his confusion, John sends Jesus a message. In verses 18 through 20, we read, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Friends, remember, this is John the Baptist, a spiritual giant. And it's tempting to say, I would never think that way. But if I'm honest, I know I've said or thought these words in my own heart. And if you're honest, you probably have too. It might sound like this, though. Prove yourself to me, God. Show yourself to me. If you do this one thing, I will follow you forever. I deserve better. Or simply, it's not fair, God. You know, from a young age, we're very aware of whether or not something's fair or not. If you don't believe me, just come and sit in the Bennett household for a few hours. And as Philip Yancey puts it, we tend to think life should be fair because God's fair. But God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. Someone defined disappointment as the gap between what we expect and what we experience. And for John, it seems that his expectations are not being met by Jesus. And it just isn't fair. He's done his part. He's lived fully for Jesus. But now Jesus isn't keeping his end of the deal. John's plans for who Jesus should be and John's timing of when uh, Jesus should act are not happening. It's the subtle shift we all make from time to time from thy will be done to my will be done. And so in what sounds like perhaps a passive-aggressive question, he asks Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And we wonder, how will Jesus answer this question? Well, as we turn to verses 21 and 22, we see exactly how, as one commentator puts it, Jesus responded with a heart-stopping, eye-popping display of spiritual power. He gently but firmly rebukes John's lack of faith with a very public and powerful display of who he is. And he is indeed fulfilling the mission statement he laid out right back at the beginning of Luke. Remember when he opened the scroll and read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, in Luke 7, 21 and 22, we read, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. 
He's helping John to remember. He's still doing what he said he would do. And yes, there's more to come still, but that will be in his timing, not John's. But then in verse 23, to give John some encouragement, he said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, John, you and anyone else like you will be blessed if you don't fall away because of your disappointment with the way I choose to work. And we know that John does take this to heart because he remains steadfast to the end. Friends, don't let your disappointment become disillusionment with God, even to the point of disavowal of him. And then in the final section of our reading, in verses 24 through 27, after sending John the Baptist's disciples back to him with such a challenging answer, Jesus evidently senses that some who've heard his words might wrongly begin to depreciate John's ministry, a situation he wouldn't want to go unchecked. So he validates John and his ministry before he reminds those who'll listen of who they are and what part they'll play in this story. You see, John was a great prophet, but for all those who repent and follow Jesus, the same salvation, the same sanctification, the same power of the Spirit is available. I tell you, says Jesus, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Yes, John was the greatest man who ever lived, except, of course, for the God-man himself, Jesus. And the qualification, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, doesn't diminish the fact of John's greatness. But as Kent Hughes puts it, the kingdom must be superior to its announcement. The people of the kingdom must be superior to the announcer. A position of the kingdom must be greater than that of its herald. There are no second-class Christians in the kingdom There's no caste system. All who follow Jesus will experience the inheritance that he offers. Friends, disappointment with God is normal, but it's not something that cannot be overcome. And in fact, it leads us to a much stronger and deeper faith. Did you know that the Greek word used in the New Testament for remember is anamimnesko, anamimnesko, from which we get our English word amnesia, And it's a reminder that like the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, we are all quick to forget what God said and what he's done in our lives. Remembrance is crucial to overcoming disappointment. And so first of all, we need to remember what he's done in our lives and not what we wish that he had done. So I still remember how he used the end of that long-term relationship in college to bring me to a lifelong relationship with him. Praise God. I remember how in Bible college, he built my faith upon a firm foundation that would last for a lifetime. Praise God. I remember how when I first moved here, out of my loneliness and lostness, he humbled me. He spoke to me and he got me back on track with him. Praise God. I remember how he showed up and provided every single penny we needed to complete seminary, growing my faith and trust in him in incredible ways. Praise God. And I remember how a couple of years ago when I felt lost, he showed me the way and led me out of darkness. Praise God indeed. But second of all, we also need to remember 
who he is according to God's word, not how we wish him to be. He's not just some kind of fairy godmother or cosmic slot machine. No, he's the good shepherd. He's the giver of all good gifts, the lover of our souls. And he's the God of the universe who has a purpose and a plan for our lives and the lives of those around us that sometimes far beyond our understanding. But most importantly of all, we need to remember what Jesus has achieved for us by his life, death, and resurrection. Something we could never achieve by our own actions. And that in this achievement, he's already given us everything we could ever need. You see, even the greatest disappointment that the world has ever known has been turned on its head and used for God's glory. Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet three days later, death is defeated and the way for all of humankind to be saved is complete. Friends, we are all going to experience disappointment with God in our lives. But when we remember what God has done for us, who he is, our lives begin to overflow with gratitude and that gratitude overcomes the disappointments in our lives. It breaks the power that they might have over us and it leads to others experiencing God's goodness also. It's what's happening in our psalm today, Psalm 40. The writer is remembering a time that God rescued him and it's leading his heart to overflow with praise and gratitude to the point where others are seeing who God is. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Might this be how God uses the disappointments in our lives? Not as insurmountable problems, but rather as a means for his love and his grace to become even more real in our lives and also the lives of others. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we love you. Today we love you and we praise you, but we recognize that there are those who are currently experiencing disappointment with you. And Lord, we pray that for each person experiencing that, you would help them to turn to you right now and to see you picking them up out of that miry bog, to experience that, Lord Jesus, and to grow in their faith more and more as they see that happen. Lord Jesus, would you help us to not become disillusioned, but instead to turn to you and to remember who you are and what it is that you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.